Corla Pandit presents Adventure in Music. New exciting sounds to inspire imagination. Absorbing rhythm to cast a spell of unique enchantment. Welcome to Barracuda Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Fox. It's hard to imagine a world without televisions. Today, TVs are not just ubiquitous, they're everywhere. But in the 1940s, television was an expensive new gadget that very few households owned. When the World Series was televised for the first time in 1947, only 44,000 TV sets were in use in the entire US. In 1948, only 10% of Americans had ever seen a television program. The only thing that was more scarce than TV sets was TV programming. Radio had been widely adopted for decades, with over 40 million sets in use by the late 1940s. So the majority of talent and advertising money was still going into radio. In addition, television was so new that no one had really figured out what to do on TV just yet. In just a few years, skyrocketing viewership would cause radio hits like Dragnet and Jack Benny to move to television. But in its infancy, many early TV shows weren't much more than radio with a picture. The traditional radio music program was adapted to TV by simply showing the musicians playing their instruments. That was the TV show. And it was pretty amazing stuff by 1940s standards. A music show that premiered during those pioneering days of television was Corla Pandit's Adventures in Music. It was broadcast out of KTLA in Los Angeles beginning in February of 1949 and it had more of a hook than your average music program. Corla Pandit was an Indian musical prodigy born in New Delhi. He played exotic themes on a Hammond organ or a piano, sometimes playing both instruments at once. As he played, the turban-clad musician gazed wistfully directly into the camera. His only communication with the viewer was through his trance-like stare and what he called the universal language of music. He never spoke on the show. What at first glance seems like a simple music program became something wildly exotic and otherworldly. Pandit's organ arrangements were accompanied by dark lighting, slow camera moves, and close-ups of his eyes. The resulting show was all at once hypnotic, noir, exotic, and surreal. He performed Adventures in Music live on the air five days a week. Over 900 episodes were aired, but only a few survive to this day. Pandit's show aired during TV's boom years, and he became wildly popular. In 1951, he played a two-hour concert at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium and was called back for three encores. A version of the TV show was syndicated to independent stations nationwide, and he became a huge hit. He became friends with Eastern religious figures and released dozens of albums. His music laid a foundation for the exotica genre made famous in the 1950s by musicians like Les Baxter, Martin Denny, and Emus Sumac. But what seemed wild in the uptight days of 1948 was considered laughably tame by the freaky-deaky standards of 1968. 
Pandit and other exotic musicians fell out of favor. Corla Pandit's celebrity faded, but he worked as a musician and a music teacher and continued releasing albums through 1971. He reclaimed some of his fame during the Exotica slash lounge revival of the 1990s, but passed away shortly after. Director John Turner has just finished a feature documentary about Pandit's life called Corla. The documentary doesn't just tell the lost story of a TV pioneer or an Indian musician. It also tells a story that turns out to be uniquely American. And it's based on a secret that Pandit kept hidden even from members of his own family. It's a secret that wasn't discovered until years after his death. Just a quick note, if you like this show, you can support us by clicking through our Amazon banner at barracudaradio.com. You can also pay what you like for an episode with PayPal, also through barracudaradio.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. John Turner, welcome to Barracuda Radio. Thank you very much. Now, you are the director of a new documentary about Corla Pandit. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this documentary. I worked at Channel 7 News in San Francisco for 35 years as a news editor, a news producer, an arts reporter, and an arts producer. And I was always interested in bringing the bizarre to the television in the Bay Area. And fortunately, we have a, we have a pretty great collection of eccentric people in the Bay Area, and they're, they're not only tolerated, but in most cases, they're celebrated, going back to Emperor Norton. We had a 40th anniversary program celebrating Channel 7 in 1990. And um, some of the people who had performed or had their own live shows on Channel 7 in the 50s and the 60s were people like Jack LaLanne and Gypsy Rosalie and also an exotic organist named Corla Pandit. I grew up in the Midwest, so I wasn't familiar with Corla Pandit, but I was able to watch the telecast that the station put together, and I got a little bit of his background in that he had been on the air, our air, in uh, 1953 at a daily program, 15-minute program, and he played the Hammond organ and the piano, and mostly show tunes and um, songs that, you know, had a East Indian flavor to them. The thing that made him mysterious was that he never talked during any of his programs. The camera was right on his eyes, and they would pull back to reveal a, a turban with a topaz jewel in the center. And he was wearing a, you know, a coat and tie, and he was a good-looking guy. I mean, when they did any of the uh, stats on who was watching Corla, it was the young housewives. And they loved him. And matter of fact, his contract was only for a year at that time. He was still voted the most popular Bay Area television personality after he had left. Oh, so after he was off the air, he was still the most popular. He was still the most popular. Well, so anyway, he just came on for a few minutes and talked to one of our hosts. And at that time, I was um, producing segments for the 11 o'clock news. And one of them was the segment I was doing for the sweeps at that time was called Eccentric Avenues where I had uh, people like Fakir, the body piercer, <laughs> who's a Bahirian native. Uh, I had Mickey McGowan from the Unknown Museum and um, a fellow who uh, showed experimental films. And I thought, I think Corla would fit into that. So I tracked him down about a month later, and he was actually living in Calistoga. 
And I said, Corla, would it uh, be possible if we came out and did a little extended interview? And he said, oh, I'd love to have you out here. So anyway, we went out, myself, a camera person, and Carolyn Tyler, who uh, is she's an African-American reporter. And we went out to this home in Calistoga where Corla had a, a beautiful organ installed, and he gave us a little mini concert. And then uh, I asked him questions about uh, what's it like being an Indian and uh, here in America. And he would basically go, you know, had, had kind of like a prepared rap where he would talk about uh, these were like uh, New Age slogans that were coming out in the 70s. We were talking about in my world, you know, you in the heart you vibrate one string and all strings vibrate together in unison. And the uh, love is the universal language. These are usually said in a pretty soft voice where you had to kind of listen to them. You were kind of sitting at the master's feet. And of course, he was wearing a turban and he was dressing really sharp. He thought, wow, this is kind of fun being around this guy. Anyway, we did the piece. It was well received. And actually, we um, I remember we promoted the piece on air like, <laughs> like t- television stations do in the sweeps. We said, on Thursday... See Corla Pandit and hear him talk for the first time in 40 years. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. From that time, Corla called me at work about every three months. Mm-hmm. And this was all the way up until he died in 1997. He would call me and, uh, oh, John, my soul greets your soul. How are you doing today? And I used to be busy doing my job. So I kind of pulled the phone out a little bit and... Uh, he was polite, ask you what you're doing. Then he, then he'd get into, of course, what he was doing in terms of uh, gigs. And essentially, he was, you know, he was talking to me and fishing around to see if there were any gigs in the Bay Area that I might like. Because I did, I did tell people about Corla. I thought he's a, you know, a good entertainer. And so we had these conversations for many years. He passed in 1997 in Petaluma, California. He had, uh, he was a diabetic, and uh, it was heart disease. Three years later, somebody sent me a, an article about Corla that was actually done by a fellow named R.J. Smith from Los Angeles Magazine, which gave a broader picture of Corla Pandit. And when I saw this article, I was kind of surprised. No, no, that's, that's being nice. I was very surprised. I was blown away. Anyway, I showed this article to a couple of friends of mine at work. I said, gee, this is pretty amazing. And they, they agreed. And one of the people I showed it to was a, a friend of mine who was a sports producer at the station, a fellow named Eric Christensen. Moved the clock forward another uh, 15 years. Eric retires. And uh, he's right out of the bat, he's starting to make documentaries. And he made a documentary on the Trips Festival, mm-hmm. the, you know, with the Grateful Dead and stuff. And, man, this guy turned this out, and I was going, wow, that's amazing. Good for Eric, you know. This guy really knows what he's doing. He's not wasting a minute of his retirement. After that was out, he turned right into another project on – album cover art. And this these are ambitious projects where he was, you know, he was doing this on his own dime and seeing a lot of these uh, stars that he had known through his life because he was, he's a record collector and a, and a rock historian. He was turning out some real interesting products. So I got together with Eric and I said, gee, you know, would you think about doing a documentary together? And we were thinking about what we could do that we both liked and bang, the light bulb went on and said, let's do Corla's story. A lot of people that are listening, especially younger people, they might not be familiar with Corla. He was hugely popular. And this was this is a thing that I think is hard to conceive today. But his first TV show was five days a week, 
him playing the organ and the piano on TV. And that was the show. At that time, people didn't know what television was. They didn't know what to make of it. So that's why shows like that made sense. Explain to people that aren't familiar with Corla what his personality was and who he was on screen. Corla came from a New Delhi Indian. He was a child prodigy. Father was a Brahmin priest. His mother was a French opera singer. Came to England at 12, had some um, lessons, some musical lessons, then immigrated to the United States. Ended up in Hollywood, where he ended up getting initially some radio work. Just about any gig he'd get on the radio, he would play. One of, matter of fact, one of the uh, some of the earlier shows, he was he played backup with the Sons of the Pioneer, Roy Rogers Group, because he still wore his his native turban. They called him Cactus Pandit, <laughs> and he's actually got a credit as Cactus Pandit. Anyway, so he he was working in the L.A. music scene as a uh, pianist uh, and as an organist, and he went where the money was and the jobs were. He got a job. This is quite fortuitous. He was playing at a um, fashion show, uh, and I think probably the May Company or no Brennan's in Los Angeles. And there was a fellow, Klaus Landensberg, who was a owned a TV station. It was just putting together the TV station KTLA, and he was kind of scouting for talent. He came to this fashion show, and Corla was playing. And uh, he talked to Corla afterwards, and, you know, and said, "Gee, you know, you're really you're pretty good at pretty good at what you're doing. Would you like to come work for me in television?" Corla, of course, was, you know, sure, that'd be great. But the conditions were that uh, he would have to work on another one of his, Klaus's new shows for free to be able to get his own show. And the show that he got, uh, that he worked on, it was the puppet show, Time with Beanie. And so wherever you hear those sounds, that was Corla in the background, tickling the ivories. And he did that, I think, at least for a year. But then he was given a show. The Adventures of Corla Pandit. And that started in 1949. And that was a daily 15-minute TV show, just like the show I mentioned earlier in San Francisco, where he played show tunes and classical tunes and stared right at the camera and didn't speak a word. And uh, it took off because basically of, of a, the housewives supported that show because they thought, God, look at this exotic guy, almost hypnotizing me, looking me right in the eye, and, and he's playing to me. This is great. I love it. Also, Corla was exotic. People at that time, Americans at that time, really didn't it knew very little about India, the country, the culture, and the music. So here you have somebody sitting before them playing the piano with these some you know, quasi-strange compositions, wearing a turban. And that, of course, brought up comparisons to what the people had seen in the movies, the stereotypes that were created by the movies of Indians wearing turbans, Sabu, servants, magicians, mysterious people, people that you shouldn't get to know too well because they may hypnotize you and then God knows what will happen <laughs> after that. So they didn't question him. They didn't ask him. And the fact that he didn't tell just made it that much better. It really kept the idea of a man of mystery alive. Eventually, there was a syndicated version of him playing these songs that was sent around the country. So he actually broke out from being a regional star to being a national star. Tell me a little bit about this phenomenon of telescriptions, as they were called at the time. Okay. Telescriptions is a term, and a, actually it was a physical thing put together by a guy named Louis Snader. 
who actually uh, had been in real estate. In the early days of television, as in film, just about anybody uh, who had two legs and uh, a good gift to gab could get into that business. And Snader, what he did is he would film a number by a band, by an individual, by groups. These wouldn't be kinescopes. These would be actual film. And they would be, in some cases, two-camera shoots. So people could come into a studio, set up, perform their number, break down. The next band would come in. Same thing. He could do 10 to 15 different three-minute songs a day. With those uh, songs on film, he would syndicate these. And this is kind of interesting. This is like pre-MTV by many, many years in which you were filming musical concerts, musical compositions, musical songs. And uh, these were sent to the TV stations as filler. A lot of times these smaller stations couldn't fill an hour and they might need to fill two minutes between 3.57 in the morning and four o'clock. So give me a Snader, put a Snader on. And Corla was on these. And so he became known throughout the United States through these fillers. I've been told that some people you know, saw these internationally as well, but mm. it was a fairly successful relationship for a while. He left KTLA, went to Snader, and then after Snader's, after that finished, then he went to KGO and then his career continued. And KGO was in San Francisco. Yeah, so. that was in 1953. Mm-hmm. So he was doing the shows with KTLA from 49 to 51. So there was so little content available for television stations to play, and they had so little resources that they would take three and four minute clips from syndication just to be able to have something to air. In this day and age of hundreds and hundreds of stations, internet stations, everybody's got their own YouTube channel. But now we have infomercials. Yeah, right. <laughs> running at 3.30 in the movie in the morning. <laughs> Somebody figured out, we have all this dead time. Why are we paying for content? Right. They'll pay us for content. Exactly. You watch a Vegematic go to town <laughs> while you're losing weight. <laughs> all right. Through his whole life until his death, he's known as this mystic prodigy from India. And the godfather of exotica music. The godfather of exotica music. So he's sort of started where Les Baxter and Martin Denny, all these guys came in, started making these exotic sounding foreign records that people would play at their parties and their barbecues and their luau's in the 50s. And if you look at the exotica movement of that time, it is very inauthentic. It's things from South America are kind of meshed with things from Polynesia. And it's just, the idea is just they're different. They're a little wild, and they're unrestrained, and there's just a little bit of craziness, outsiderness to them. He's essentially known as the godfather of the Yeah, he, he preceded Les Baxter and Martin Denny, and the only other person who was working in that field of exotica at that time, or pre-exotica, was Ima Sumek. Mm-hmm. And she was known, uh, known as a Peruvian princess, Inca princess, who was bringing her wonderful songs from the from the mountains to the mainland here in the United States. Mm-hmm. When Corla and Ima were performing, they might have been thought of exotic people, but not necessarily that this was exotica music. That came after Martin Denny and right. Mel Lyman and a bunch of other people. And then it became a cohesive body where people say, hey, look at that. And then, hey, where did this all start with? Well, Corla Panton. So he opened the door for all he those people. He opened the door, yeah, and unknowingly. So- He had sort of fallen out of favor by the early 70s, but there was an Exotica revival in the late 80s, early 90s, and he did have a bit of a resurgence. Yes, especially in Los Angeles, 
where there were, there was a, you know, a good group of um, LA hipsters who were into lounge singers and they were into the tiki movement and whatever that meant, you know, tiki torches, tiki drinking, getting, getting shit faced on tiki drinks, living in that, uh, faux, uh, being, being naive about the past, you know, right. just kind of escapism, pure escapism and just saying, yeah, I know this is all fake, but I'm enjoying the fakeness of the fake. For me, what was always appealing about that movement was I was so envious of people at that time being able to be that naive. Just, oh, I'm I'm going to put on a Corla Pandit record or I'm going to light up a tiki torch and I'm in tropical Polynesia and Corla Pandit's playing there, even though he's Indian and this is Polynesian. Just the idea that you could get into La La Land so easily back then, I'm, I've always been envious of that. And I think that's well, part of Well, you did some of that. You were around for that. Though, I was right? around for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you get, uh, I don't know how deep you, if you were lighting the tiki torches yourself, <laughs> <laughs> but you were there. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, you were there and you knew the people and, and knew who the performers were. And, you know, he was, Corla was also playing, you know, he worked with a fellow named uh, Joey Cheesy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joey Cheesy was a lounge singer, and he was doing a, a takeoff on Vegas lounge acts, except he did his on rollerblades. He would do a bit of his act of, you know, singing songs from the 40s, doing, doing bad covers. And then he'd bring Corla on for a number, and Corla would play his uh, universal theme, you know, do, 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 do. And, and the crowds loved it. They had a lot of respect for Corla. You know, here was this guy at that time who would have been in his early seventies and here he was still out there, uh, you know, giving it a go. And, you know, they loved him. For the hipster scene, it was a pretty rich period. We'll be back with more Barracuda Radio after this short break. I'm Johnny Condon. Robbie Sullivan here. This is Political Talk with Two Guys from Boston, brought to you by Bevilacqua Heating and Air Conditioning. We're cool if you are cool. Don't forget, folks, Bevilacqua Heating and Air Conditioning t-shirts and beer koozies are now available at ComedyFilmNerds.com. Yeah, they fit nice, don't they? You just need a computer and money. Yeah. A program based on the universal language of music it is our pleasure to present to you Corla Pandit. I know many of our viewers would like to know uh, some of your background, so why don't we start with the very elementary things. Where were you born? I was born in New Delhi, New Delhi, India, uh-huh. and uh, started performing music, in a sense, at a very early age. Two years and four months old. <laughs> there were stories that he'd married a wealthy Texas oil woman. There were stories that he was gay, that he died, that he disappeared, that he was playing in pizzerias. Anything was possible with Corla. That sound is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. Sound and sound vibrations. And in sound, you might say, as Emerson did one time, vibrate a string and all strings in tune vibrate in unison. And I add to that, and so does the heart of man. Everyone who knew Corla knew that there was something very authentic about that man, and yet that there was a part of who he was that did not jive with his backstory. That was a clip from the new feature documentary about musician Corla Pandit, entitled Corla. Now, 
let's return to our interview with director John Turner. Corla has a bit of a revival and eventually passes away. And when this article came out in Los Angeles Magazine, there was a very interesting fact in the article that you, having known him, weren't aware of, and none of his fans really were aware of. Tell me about what that fact was. Well, in one sentence, he was found to be an African-American from Columbia, Missouri. That was what blew our collective minds when we read that. We said, my gosh, how did this guy pass? What a story this guy built. What a life he must have led. Rocky life, an interesting life, a challenging life, a dangerous life, all wrapped into one. That article gave Eric and I the impetus for saying, let's see if we can maybe turn this into a documentary because it's a good story. And I would say even further down the road, we saw the film Waiting for Sugar Man, which that had a reveal halfway through the film that, oh, this guy's this dude's alive. We thought Corla's story was a lot richer than that. When we saw this article, you know, it just changed the way we thought of Corla Pandit and the Corla Pandit story because the backstory was always, it was as it was moving closer and closer to the front, you were constantly reevaluating the information you had already processed years ago. Right. And actually being with him, talking to him. I've been to India probably a dozen times. And I know we all encounter Indians here in the United States. And some of them have an accent. Some of them, are, some of them have a strong accent. Some of them have a lesser accent. But sometimes that's an accent, accent you can pick up. Not with Corla at all. There was nothing. When you looked at Corla, this sweet little old man, because he was actually kind of short, mm -hmm. in a turban and then dressed to the nines, you just didn't want to get up in his face and say, hey, Corla, uh, when was the last time you were in New Delhi or... Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the Taj Mahal or or what kind of Indian food do you, you want to have today? You just wouldn't do that because it would be impolite. There was no point in it. He was a really nice guy you were sharing some time with. Why would he want to fool me? And actually to this day, I, I you know, that twist, you know, I, I still think about it quite a bit, you know, and I, and I hope we were able to portray some of what Corla's life might have been like in the film. His real name was John Roland Red, correct? That's correct, yeah. And he's American. African-American. African-American. But he's born and raised in America. He was actually born in St. Louis and raised in Columbia, Missouri. Mm -hmm. When you had that realization that he was not an Indian, how did you process that? What went through your mind? Oh, I just thought it was fascinating. You know, I became a cheerleader for Corla at that moment. The guy pulled it off. Despite these really uh, dangerous odds and what could have happened to him if he would have been revealed or exposed during his career... I thought, wow, this guy did it. I thought it was amazing. And the fact that people reinvent themselves is not that uncommon here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Here in Hollywood, people are reinventing themselves all the time before they come here. In the earlier days in the studios, the studios would reinvent you and repackage you. They would change your name, your hair color, place of birth, your backstory. And in many cases, even your, your ethnic makeup. It was accepted here, and that's why it was a perfect place for Corler to grow and to hide. And he was able to try out his backstory among these people. And this is Hollywood. You know, you, you tell me you're from Iceland? Yeah, fine. I'm going to be going up there next month, you know, so any of these kind of things. So he had found the perfect incubator for his reinvention. It didn't upset me in the least. And like I said, I was pulling for him in past tense. It was an amazing thing that he did. 
my hat is certainly off to him for doing that. And I've read more about, since I got involved in this project, about certainly the downside of passing and, and that in the 18th to the 20th century, you know, thousands of African-Americans passed for white. If they were successful, they had to leave behind their family, their community, their memories. Horrible. And then as they entered into their new life, they had to constantly make sure they had their story straight every day. Because if they got busted, they would you know, lose their job, probably have to move. And the reason for a lot of African-Americans in passing, according to Alison Hobbs in her book, um, Chosen Exile, is for, for economic reasons mm-hmm. and for mobility, because most of the uh, African-Americans are moving from the South to the North. And this was true in Corliss' case, is that he took kind of a different route, which even made it more interesting, is that you know he married a, a white woman in 1944. They were in California. At that time, it was legal to marry across the races. So they got married in Tijuana, Mexico. Because legally, they couldn't do it in the United States. Yeah, mixed marriage right. in, in California. In California. I don't think it was allowed until 1947. So Corler was aware of that. And then for him to make a living from his talented uh, fingertips at the tickling the ivories, he had the option of going into a, uh, a black musician's union, which would have relegated him to the chitling circuit into bars. Or if he got into the white musicians union, well, if you're talented, that's a walkway to fame. It even led to television. And he became so famous, he was even featured in the Rose Bowl parade twice. So he chose to be an Indian. And this was uh, this whole fabrication, reinvention, actually was coordinated by his wife. She was the, she was the person behind the story who kept the story straight and uh, took care of Corla's public relations and, and kept the people out who might bust them. And then she worked as an artist for Disney and Hanna-Barbera. And she met uh, Corla in 44. She was actually rooming with um, Corla's sister. And they, she set him up on a blind date. And they fell for each other and, and got married. And Anyway, she fabricated that story, and she was the guardian at the gate to make it successful. And passing as an Indian at that time, according to immigration records, is that an Indian could be classified as a Caucasian. And once he got that union's card, the white union's card, well, that's where his career took off. Right. So in a very literal sense, what your perceived designation of your race was had a dramatic impact on your income. That's it in a sentence. And your career and where you could go and where you could play. That's that's it in two sentences. <laughs> <laughs> so I think part of the reason why people don't feel betrayed by him is that it was an invention, but there wasn't an intentional inauthenticity to it. It never felt like he was trying to get one over on you. Maybe it's because the messages that he gave out were messages of positivity and spirituality and love that people wanted to accept that he was Indian. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned before, there were very few Indian models that Americans would be familiar with outside of the stereotypes presented in Hollywood, with the exception in the 50s of Yogananda coming to the States and preaching what he had brought with him from India. Now, an interesting aspect is that uh, Korla became friends with Yogananda. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have a picture of of, uh, Yogananda and... and, uh, Corla and his wife, uh, you know, having lunch together at the Self-Realization Temple. And uh, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall when they were talking. But uh, they became friends to the to the extent that Yogananda wrote liner notes for one of Corla's albums. And Corla 
played at Yogananda's funeral. So, so when you're talking about that's a that's a, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, you can sort of understand white people giving him the benefit of the doubt or not knowing better. But here's this yogi, and he's got to be looking at him and saying, "This is astroturf. You're not quite real." It makes you wonder whether he knew it and just didn't say anything or just wanted to go along with the belief. At least he was giving out a positive image of Indians. So yes. maybe that's why he let it slide. Or... Yeah, and he, and, and he did have a, a, a spiritual mes- message, which was, you know, knitted from other people's talks and lectures and, and things of this nature. But And he would actually, in interviews, he would prefer talking about that to music. So uh, he did have a strong spiritual side to him, and he really believed in music being a uh, you know the medicine bowl for uh, healing the the universe. And in the sixties, like I said, nothing really happened until uh, you know in terms of uh, Americans being really kind of familiar with Indian music. It wasn't until Ravi Shankar came in the sixties, mm-hmm. and then the Beatles uh, glommed on to the Maharishi. And went to India. Then we started learning about, oh, let's see, people, like, not everybody wears a turban and actually only Sikhs wear a turban. And Corlin always said he was a Brahmin. Well, they could put together a few of these pieces. But uh, that's where, you know, I think the American population in general became cognizant of India, Indian food, Indian culture was with uh, Shankar. And that was in the 60s. Prior to that, we're talking about Sabu, Yogananda. Right. So in 1946, 1948, this is a time when if Americans had any exposure to any Indian culture, it was maybe in the pages of National Geographic. People didn't fly around the country much, much less go to India. You had to be very rich to do that. For them, it would be very hard for them to spot that he's inauthentic. Mm -hmm. Having known him, do you get the sense that he actually became this person? Was Corla Pandit his personality at some point? I personally believe that 100%. I think that as a method of survival, he had to become Corla Pandit. He mm. evolved into Corla Pandit. And I've talked to several other people who knew him professionally, and they said, yeah, that's what he did. He was Corla Pandit. He wasn't anybody else. And he did, that was a survival mechanism. And, uh, I certainly can understand that. And the, the stories that he told, which interests me is, I was, how did he not slip up? You know, I mean, there are a lot of humorous stories where he'd be walking in the streets of Seattle and there'd be a couple of uh, Sikhs walking toward him. And then all of a sudden, Corley would just do a big old U-turn so I, so I wouldn't have to, so I wouldn't have to uh, talk with him. Or I've heard of uh, when he'd be performing at a club and some Indians would come up afterwards and, oh, thank you very much, Mr. Pena. It's so wonderful to hear you play, you know, music from the homeland. And then they would start speaking in their native uh, dialect and, and Corley would say, oh, I am sorry. I have not been home in so many years that I'm my, uh, uh, I'm, my dialect is so rusty that we should probably converse in English. And, uh, you know, I apologize for uh, not being able to talk about India right now. This really isn't the proper place. And it would work. He'd get by with that, you know. But uh, he had to develop parallel stories of his life and his real life and, and then his life as Corla Pandit. And what was interesting is, is that when he talked about his father, he was a, a high priest, a Brahmin high priest. Well, his mother, I mean, his father was a minister. I can't believe he was, if he was Presbyterian or Baptist. But anyway, his father was a minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother was a, uh, a singer, you know, a French opera singer in India. 
your mother here, you know, led the choir. So all these kind of things kind of, when he would be telling a story, he'd be really telling you the truth, but he might just have the locations wrong. What starts out as a story of an Indian personality and an Indian culture, it really flips as soon as you know the truth about him. It becomes this the most American of stories, the fact that you can reinvent yourself and that you have to reinvent yourself. For me, that's where I don't feel betrayed by him because there is this other story behind it that is as interesting or more interesting than the story of Korla Pandit coming to the U.S. from India. One of his favorite songs was the uh, was the Song of India, which is not was done by Korskov. What was different about the way he played the Hammond B3 organ, of which he was one of the earlier practitioners of, and he had a lot of really, he had a lot of flourishes in his act. You know, he was uh, using the uh, the keys as a percussion instrument, and the reason he said he did that was that uh, the organ could replicate just about any instrument in an orchestra or a band. And he said. When they went to hire out for radio jobs, he said, you only have to hire one musician and you'll get the whole orchestra here. And anyway, so he had these pretty amazing flourishes on the organ where he high-handed it and, and, and you know, pounded it, kind of like a Indian Jerry Lee Lewis or something. <laughs> but uh, oh, that might be a stretch. I never saw him put his foot on the <laughs> piano keys. We'll be back with more Barracuda Radio after this short break. Hi, I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And folks, I love being a comic and an actor and a writer, but there's nothing I love better than this show, The Larry Miller Show, the best podcast in history. Come join us and tell a friend where better podcasts are found, or on LarryMillerPodcast.com. Welcome back to Barracuda Radio. Let's return to the show. The person who copied Corla Pandit was Liberace. Liberace was working in the clubs in Los Angeles when Corla was on television. He was aware of Corla's act, which was looking right into the camera, breaking the fourth wall, engaging the audience. And when Corla walked from KTLA, for over money reasons, that's when Liberace slid in right behind him, same studio, same props, even probably some of the same compositions. And um, there he was, you know, he was now Liberace, breaking that fourth wall, which he gets credit for. But right. it was Corla who did it first. He thought that some of that fame probably should have been his. And he kind of thought that you know, Liberace had stolen his soul. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I think he got over it eventually, but that's what he did tell some people, you know. And and I can see that. And, and this thing about reinvention, there are some, you know, some other people are, you know, kind of well-known who were able to achieve this as well in American entertainment. One was Iron Eyes Cody. Do you remember seeing him as the Indian who was crying mm -hmm. in the pollution campaigns? Right. Uh, and it was in over a hundred films in which he portrayed Indians, Indian chiefs and whatever. He was actually of Italian descent. Oh, really? Yes. Iron Eyes Cody was an Italian. There was another fellow named Herb Jeffries who just died, I think, last year, mm -hmm. who was known as the, the Bronze Buckaroo. 
and he appeared in all black westerns and also became like the singing cowboy, like a, a black Gene Autry. And he ended up playing with Duke Ellington and some other people. And, you know, a pretty famous guy, you know, doing music. And it was later revealed that he also was Italian and that actually for some of his jobs, he used makeup to darken his skin. So, so Corla was not unique to uh, reinvention and to successfully getting away with it. Yeah, and a lot of that is of the time, for example, Duke Kahanamoku, the famous Hawaiian swimmer and surfer, he was a bit of a celebrity and came to Hollywood to be in movies, and they kept casting him as a Native American Indian. So it's a thing that is perceived as a callousness of the entertainment industry. But in a lot of ways, people come over and they just they want to work. They want to work in these jobs. And like we said, if you can break yourself into some seemingly different ethnicity, you can get more work and you can get paid better. So it's not necessarily somebody from the top down driving that. You can look at it as an artist and say, well, I need to jump into a different area because Corla, before he became Corla, he was working, making music that was intended for black armed service men. Another thing that we need to explain is that he wasn't a hack. He would play the organ and piano simultaneously on TV, correct? His uh, technique, his style of switching from organ to piano and back or simultaneously was it was visually interesting for television and for people in the audience they thought wow what look at this kind of talent the actual organist <laughs> that i've talked to didn't hold corlin as in, in the same high regards oh really you know they they didn't say that he was a hack but they were a little bit jealous too that here was a guy getting all this attention on television when he was kind of doing riffs that they thought they could do as well but he had an act and i think they were that's what they were more envious of is that uh, Corla put it together and uh, marketed himself and was uh, attractive to the television audience. An interesting thing about his show, too, is that there were over 900 episodes that were made. And just because it was the 40s, there was not a very cost-effective way to record them. And nobody was probably interested in recording them. Only a handful of episodes, of those 900 episodes that he did, survive to this day. How many episodes were you able to uncover when you're working on the documentary? I actually, of from those uh, KTLA shows, I only was able to find a snippet of one. Wow. And that's, you know, virginal Corla Pandit looking beautiful, uh, looking in charge and early days of TV effects, making him mysterious. A lot of these Snader telescriptions, those survived because those were on film. And people can actually can see these on YouTube. There mm. are like a half a dozen that, you know, you just put in Corla Pandit and these will pop up and you can get Miserloo, Song of India, Trance Dance. So you certainly can get an idea of the style that he worked in and a sound. And, and like I said, they're, they're good clips. What about his family? He had children, a wife, obviously. Do you have any sense of how they felt about his reinvented personality? Well, first of all, let's talk about his birth family, mm -hmm. is that uh, Corla had told his family, which a lot of them had ended up moving from Columbia up to Los Angeles. His father ended up actually preaching in a church in Los Angeles. So, And uh, I think a few of his sisters were living in Los Angeles area. One was a, an actress. And Corla asked them to please not tell anybody who he really was because this is how he made his living. And to a person, they respected those wishes even after he died. They were not saying anything or giving interviews, even though you know it was out in the LA Magazine article. On the other hand, his wife, Beryl, she lived about five years longer than Corla, 
And what was found out was that she and Corla had never told their two boys, John and Sherry, of their African-American heritage. Really? They always assumed they were Indian Americans. And so when this magazine article came out, it upset both of them. And R.J. Smith, who wrote that article, he actually interviewed Beryl, I think in 2001, you know, about Corla being black. And she denied it. You know, she said, no, you, know, you go, go, go doodle on somebody else's life, you know. And she more or less gave him that, that she would have never married an African-American. So both families, not in concert, because Corla's birth kids never met the other family, even though they lived in the same city. They never met. You know, this is one of the things, uh, one of the one of the byproducts of a chosen exile. Right. Did you talk to R.J. Smith for the documentary? Yes, I mean, uh, he's he's the kingpin in this in this documentary because he did some wonderful research along with a family historian named David DeClue, mm -hmm. who researched Corla's mom and dad and, and the family tree. And he found that Corla's father was African-American. His mother was Caucasian-American. Both of them were from slave families. And the other person who had a lot of information on Corla was a guy named Freak, uh, who, who um, lives in the Netherlands. And he has a Corla Pandit archives and a Corla Pandit website, www.corlapandit.com. And there he has a tremendous amount of information online that was put together by one of Corla's early organ students, a guy named Vern Langdon. And so if you want to know about Corla's biography and where he played and how many records he was on and what movies he was in, it's all there. It's a wonderful site. And it was the combination of those three resources. But we we flew um, RJ out to California and interviewed him for like probably six hours. Mm -hmm. And he ended up being the adjunct narrator of the film because he's, he's a smart guy and he knew the story. And uh, we're, we're indebted to him. How did he feel about revealing the truth about Corla Pandit? Because it seems like it wasn't very well received by his family and by some people. It wouldn't seem like he intended to harm the memory of Corla Pandit in any way or to hurt anyone because he's such a big fan. Does he discuss at all what reservations he had about making that revelation? Yeah, he, you know, this had quite an impact on RJ in regards to, you know, telling the story. He had to do a lot of soul searching to think about the life that Corla had led and the impact of more or less outing him. Although he didn't necessarily out him, it was a fellow musician who accidentally outed him to RJ when he, they were talking about a completely different subject. When RJ you know, thought, wow, this guy named John Roland Red was wearing a turban in the 50s and wait a minute, that's the guy I know. Anyway, yeah, he had to do a lot of soul searching and, and kind of rethink John's life and what he went through. And then he did a little research. He went down to Columbia, Missouri and poked around there. And, and he got, I guess, essentially the goods. He got the birth certificate, the social security card, but nobody from the family would really talk to him at that time. That's understandable. But, and I think that even when he did, when that article came out, he took some heat. Oh, I bet. Yeah. You know, there were people, how dare you? How dare you do that, that that nice man's career? What were you thinking? Why? What's the point? You know, and now from the work he did, that eventually, of course, got into the internet. And, you know, so people do uh, have a, a better idea of the full story behind Corla Pandit. So we can certainly thank R.J. Smith for that. Prior to that, there were people who speculated about Corla, but nobody really did the work to find out 
what was going on. When you think about how it's possible for someone to keep that secret for that long, even when in retrospect, there are so many obvious, seemingly obvious signs that he was not Indian. It's the love for him that the fans have that I don't need to know that he's not Indian. It's okay. I just, I just want to like him and I want to like his music and I want to like his memory and his legacy and the positive effect that he's had on my life. I tend to agree with that. And actually we have, I think RJ speaks to that at the end is he wish Corley would have known how much his fans did love him mm-hmm. for himself. And uh, he was more or less telling him that, well, you know, now that we know your story, we still like you. Yeah. And uh, we're proud of you. And um, thanks for being a part of our life. I would say the reason Eric and I did this film is threefold is one that uh, we wanted to give props to Corla's music and the fact that he has been now known as the godfather of exotica music. It's a a chunk of pop culture that we're all aware of that we have fun with. That's the stem of the root. Both Eric and I worked in television each for like about 35 years. And we thought that it was important to get acknowledgments that John Roland Red, also known as Corla Pandit, was the first African-American, to our knowledge, to have had his own live TV show. Right. Good point. That's important. You know, he couldn't take credit. And we're trying to get him that credit posthumously. Two weeks ago, we had a screening for the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences in San Francisco. And they gave us a, uh, a certificate honoring John Roland Red for his con- pioneering broadcasting his pioneer contributions to broadcasting as Corla Pandit. So I plan on giving that to one of uh, Corla's nephews. Mm-hmm. And the third point, it was a labor of love. That, that's ab- above and beyond because Eric and I have both retired and, uh, you know, you hear stories about uh, kids, you know, making films on credit cards mm-hmm. and busting money out of their parents' accounts and, <laughs> you know, you name it, there's a story about it. And, you know, it makes for good copy. Well, Eric and I are just the opposite. We funded this film on our social security checks, on our pensions from <laughs> working in television and, you know, a little bit of savings. So, And when we go to um, film festivals, we're the oldest farts there. (laughs) You know, when they say there's an 11 o'clock screening, they say, well, we're not going to be there. (laughs) We're going to bed. 11 p.m.? (laughs) Yeah. Hey, buddy. (laughs) But anyway, the third reason is being is that we also felt that the story of passing is one that some of the generations now are completely unfamiliar with because... Even though race is a big issue, it's right below the surface. You see it on television every day and mm-hmm. from shootings in uh, Ferguson to racial dolezal, it's right there. But the, the chapter about passing is one that seems to be lost. Mm-hmm. And I thought it, passing was one of the... And by passing, you mean the phenomenon of trying to pass yourself off as a different race. Exactly, right. exactly. And in most cases, most cases from black to white. It's like you said, this is something that now with the uh, the people are just more accepting of mixed marriages and their entertainers like Bruno Mars or what have you. That's who we are now. But we weren't that 50 years ago. Right. And I think that's a that's an important thing to look back upon just as to the story of the travails of people who passed and to acknowledge what they did. Right. And that was not that long ago. I mean, that was in many people's lifetime. Yes. That's why we, why we ended up doing this film, and we're glad we did it. If people want to find out where they can see this film and what the status of it is for getting it on home video, where can they find you on the internet? All right. Uh, I'm the hip one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the young senior. 
Uh, no, we have a, uh, a Facebook page and just go to uh, Coral of the Movie. And I usually post something as to where the next screening is. You know, we'll post a picture from the uh, a photo of Corla in one of the stages of his life. <laughs> I try to do that once a week. So, yeah. And also we have a, a web page, www.corlathemovie.com. There's a, a place on that page for you to click on uh, want more information. You know, I answer all questions people have about Corla. And if I can't answer them, then I pass them along to Freak in the Netherlands. And he knows. We have screenings coming up in... Um, New York in September at the Harlem International Film Festival. I am arranging a screening right now with uh, to be held in Corla's hometown of Columbia, Missouri. That's great. And we're hoping that distant relatives or fans of the Red family will show up for that and we can have a, a nice discussion about what to make of this and what impact Corla actually had on all our lives. And we have uh, a screening in two weeks on the 20th of August at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. There we will we will be presented with a proclamation by the uh, president of the Board of Supervisors naming August 20th as Corla Pandit Day in San Francisco because of his contributions to the uh, Bay Area music scene. We're all excited about this. You know, and, you know, and Corla's starting to get his props and we're passing them back on to the family and the circle is starting to close up and we're real happy about that. You said that it's being shown in some academic settings? settings yes, it's well. also like uh, it's being shown uh, like at Dartmouth. There's a, there's a gentleman there who is known as a Corla Pandit scholar. <laughs> He's written on Corla in, in his books. He is a Mark Williams, and he is in media studies at Dartmouth, and he has written a book about the history of television in Los Angeles, the early days. And in that, he has a chapter about Corla Pandit, which he's going to update now that he knows that Corla Pandit was African-American. And then it'll also be screened in the, I think, in October at the University of Michigan in a popular culture class in conjunction with a, with a professor there who's also written on Corla Pandit and Corla Pandit passing as an Indian. That's his area of interest and expertise mm-hmm. as Corla Pandit as the exotic, Corla Pandit as the other. So I'm just real interested in what people think about Corla. After they watch the movie, what kind of resonates with them? And uh, if they have sympathy for them, if they don't, what living a life like would be and how it might impact them. And, and I hope that if it does anything, it just stimulates that type of a discussion. Well, John Turner, thank you for your time. This is a fantastically interesting character, an interesting topic. And I thank you for taking the time to make this documentary. Thank you very much. John Turner is the director of the feature documentary, Corla. You can find out more at CorlaTheMovie.com. If you like our show, you can support us by clicking through our Amazon banner at BarracudaRadio.com. You can also pay what you like for an episode with PayPal, also through our website. We're Barracuda Radio on Facebook and Twitter. If you like the show, tell a friend. The Barracuda theme song at the top of the show is by Flag of Democracy from their album, Home Lobotomy Kid. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Colonel Jeff Fox. And until next time, thanks for listening.